grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Between a rock and a hard place. You ever found yourself there? It's where the religious leaders are in this moment when we find them encountering Jesus. They are between a rock and a hard place because on the one hand, they are ready to be rid of this rabble-rouser Jesus once and for all. They just want to get rid of him, kill him if need be, be done with him. But on the other hand, they're seeing all of the crowds that are following after Jesus, who are hailing him as a prophet. In other words, they're watching the polls and they're realizing it would not be real popular for us to get rid of Jesus right now. And so they, they find themselves caught between a rock and a hard place. And Jesus, of course, knows this. And so he tells this story. He tells this story and it is directed right at them. For those with ears to hear, in fact, it tells not only a kind of encapsulation of the, the whole story of the Bible, the story of Israel, culminating and climaxing in him, in his work. It's foreshadowing what's going to happen to our Lord Jesus if we listen to it closely. But you think, okay, so what does it really have to say to us as well? If this story is directed specifically at those religious leaders, and I think it's important for us to recognize that, we shouldn't hear it as we, as we go through it as ourselves, as the wicked tenants. Even so, this story has an important challenge, an invitation that's laid out from our Lord Jesus to you and to me. But to get to that, I want to kind of walk us through this text verse by verse. I want to walk us through a sort of a biblical tour guide this morning, okay? So if you've got your worship folder or your Bible, you want to pull it out. We're just going to make our way right through this text, through this story, verse and verses by verses, um, in order to see what is Jesus saying here, saying to those religious leaders, but also saying to us who might find ourselves in that place between a rock and a hard place. So it starts like this. Jesus says, verse 33, hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. It starts out with this summons, hear another parable. And it's easy to move right beyond that. But when we hear Jesus say that, we might have echoes in our ears of the call from prophets and from Moses in the ancient times when God said, hear, O Israel. It's God's way of saying, listen up. Pay attention. I'm about to tell you something really important. And think about this particular moment. See, Jesus knows what these religious leaders are up to and that they are fixing to have a date with death for him. Jesus wants them to turn from their wicked ways. And so he's saying to them, hear another parable. Listen up, guys. Hear what I have to say to you. He tells them the story. And the story right on the face of it, I love the Old Testament reading that's chosen for this morning because Jesus is evoking this ancient story from Isaiah, this allegory, this parable that the prophet Isaiah told about a vineyard. And in both cases, we see this compassionate care of the owner, that he's doing everything he can in order to ensure the fruitfulness of the vineyard. He's, he's putting the fence around it, he, he's putting the watchtower in it, he's taking care, putting it on a very fertile hill. But that's kind of where the comparisons stop between that Old Testament story and the, the story that Jesus is telling. Because in that Old Testament parable, the focus was on the, the fruitfulness or the lack of fruitfulness of the vineyard. But the story that Jesus is telling, you might notice, is about the tenants 
that the vineyard is leased out to, the, the caretakers. That's the twist that Jesus is making here. Because again, this parable is directed first and foremost at precisely those tenants, those caretakers, those religious leaders, and what they have done or failed to do for the sake of God's vineyard, his people. All right, so the story goes on. Pick up with verse 34. Jesus says, when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. All right, so Jesus narrates what has to be the bloodiest harvest in history, right? Some of you have worked in the fields, harvest time out there. This is not the sort of thing that we see in the orchards around Arcadia, thank God. I'm pretty sure that would be front page news, right? But here as Jesus narrates this story, this harvest, it makes the Godfather or Yellowstone look like Sesame Street. They're taking all of these servants one after another, beating them, stoning them, killing them, each and every one. But as Jesus is telling this story, this is transparently the history of Israel and its leaders. What they had done over and over again to God's servants, the prophets, as he had sent them to his people to call them to repentance, to turn back to him out of their rebellious ways, only to see those prophets, the servants, categorically ignored, rejected, or yes, even killed. The Lord had lamented through the prophet Jeremiah many years before this. He said, from the day that your ancestors came out of the land of Egypt until this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. And yet they didn't listen to me or pay attention, but they stiffened their necks. Such a picture, so often used in the Old Testament, that the people of God have stiff necks, like an ox that doesn't want to be turned from its way, like your dog when it doesn't want to follow along, ugh, trying to pull, but they would not listen, despite the persistence of providence, the calling of God Most High to come back to him. And now as Jesus tells the story, that ancient story has finally come to a head. In this opposition, in this moment, as he himself is facing them down, it has all climaxed and culminated and come to a head. And what's going to happen? Well, Jesus kind of calls his shot as the story continues. Pick up with verse 37. Jesus says, finally, he, the owner, sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, oh, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. So now things get really hairy. As the owner of the vineyard, of course, God himself says, oh, I will send my son. I will send my son to these stiff-necked people. Surely they will respect him. Now, for those first hearers, as they're hearing this story and they're hearing about this owner who keeps on sending his servants to this weird harvest and they're getting beat up, even killed, for him now to send his own son, they had to have been thinking, who is this numbskull? Like, 
<laughs> what kind of guy? Hello, McFly, like, read the writing on the wall. Clearly, these guys do not want to have anything to do with you, with your servants or anyone. And now you are going to send your son one way to look at this, to hear this, of course, is to think that the owner is just an idiot. But of course, God is not an idiot. He's patient. He is stubborn in his love. And just to step outside the story for a minute, this is the character of our gods. That God is persistently coming after you and me. Even when we wander in our own foolish ways, he doesn't give up on us. He doesn't say, all right, let him go. But instead, he keeps coming after us. As the old poem says, he's the hound of heaven, right? He is the one who keeps coming after us, even when anyone else would, would look at you and me and would look at God and say, oh, just let that one go, leave him be. He doesn't want to have anything to do with you. But instead, God, in his stubborn love and his patient mercy, keeps coming after us as he kept coming after them. And so, yes, he sends his son to these ungrateful, stiff-necked caretakers. And what they do is, of course, as obvious and expected as it is illogical. They say to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and have his inheritance. It's a predictable reaction, even if it's illogical. They're like, let's kill the heir and then we'll get the inheritance. And you want to be like, um, I'm not sure that's how that works. Right? Like, Come to our workshop on November 1st. We'll talk to you about wills. We'll explain about heirs and inheritance. It's not usually by killing the heir and just getting what he's got, right? But it's interesting, Jesus is evoking and echoing a famous story from the Old Testament. In fact, he uses the exact words verbatim from the story of Joseph and his brothers in the book of Genesis. In Genesis 37, there's this account. The brothers see Joseph, that heir, that beloved son. They say, here comes this dreamer. Come, let us kill him and throw him into the pit. And just as they did to Joseph or tried to do, so also they will do or try to do to Jesus. Kill him. Throw him outside the vineyard. But there's more to the story. Well, here we come to verse 40. As now the, the story proper has ended and we get to the punchline. It says, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they, the religious leaders, listening to Jesus, they said to him, he'll put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. See, here's the, the punchline as he asks, well, what, what's he going to do to those tenants? And here are those religious leaders, in spite of themselves, they have this moment of clarity they say you'll put those wretches to a miserable death. And in Greek, it's a, a play on words. It's a kakos kakos. You'll put those wretches to a wretched end. Yeah, that's what they deserve, right? It's exactly what they and we deserve for rejecting and rebelling against the king's son and all that he has done for you and me. That's what we ought to receive. But little do they know, they are incriminating themselves when they say that. It's, if you remember the, the story in the Old Testament of King David and the prophet Nathan, it's very similar to this, where David, after he had committed adultery, Nathan comes and, and tells him this little story about a rich man who had many sheep. 
and a poor man who had one little ewe lamb. And then the rich man killed and took that one little poor ewe lamb. And, and King David hears the story, and he, he's freaking out. He's like, oh, how dare he? We're going to go find this guy who kills the ewe lamb and put an end to him. And Nathan's like, dude, you're the man. That's what it says. But not in a good way, right? Jesus is doing a similar kind of rhetoric of misdirection here in this story as now they incriminate themselves. They're like, yeah, go get those guys. That's what they deserve. But I want you to notice this. Jesus, having asked that question and heard their answer, he doesn't say, you're darn right. Let's get them. Let's kill them. Let's show them what they deserve. That's not what he says. What does he say instead? That gets us to verse 42. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. See, quoting from Psalm 118, which had already been quoted from in uh, Matthew chapter 21, as Jesus was coming into Jerusalem, quoting from that, Jesus says that he is the cornerstone. He is that cornerstone, the one who was rejected and, and set aside. Now he becomes the foundation of salvation. And just like that cornerstone bears the, the weight, the brunt of the building on itself, so Christ will carry the weight of the world's sin on himself. That's what he came to do. The wrath that the wicked tenants incurred and deserved, the wrath that you and I rightly deserve for our sin. Christ, the cornerstone, took onto himself. He bore that weight onto himself. And yet, though he be cast away, God the Father, the owner of the vineyard, the great builder, he ensures that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and not only the cornerstone, but also the capstone, as he is exalted to the highest place, raised from the dead, and now ascended and lives on high. And this was the Lord's doing all along, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Amen? This is what Jesus has done for us, the son who succumbed to the awful wiles of those wicked tenants, but did it for them and for you and me to bear that brunt on himself, to carry that weight in himself, to put it all onto his shoulders. And thus he says, now all those blessings of the kingdom are given to those who bear its fruits. And what are those fruits? Well, that gets us to the, the challenge, the invitation that Jesus has for you and me today. And to get at that, you know, as I'm reading this, I'm, I'm thinking of a scene from one of my favorite movies, Moneyball. And Moneyball tells the story of this general manager of the Oakland A's, Billy Bean. And at one point in the, in the movie, Billy Bean is talking to his assistant named Peter Brand. And Billy Bean is, is played by Brad Pitt, heartthrob Brad Pitt, so you can picture that. And uh, Brad Pitt's talking to his assistant, Peter Brand, who's played by Jonah Hill. And he's telling him how you release a player, right? How you get rid of him, how you fire a guy, basically. And he says to him, listen, you got to do it swift. You know, all facts, no fluff. And Billy Bean goes on, he says to him, listen, would you rather get a bullet to the head or five to the chest and bleed to death? And Peter Brand's like, are those my only two options? <laughs> I think of that because Jesus says something similar here. And at the end, he says to us, oh, I threw away the text. Um, he says, the one who falls on this stone 
will be broken. But when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The one who falls on the stone will be broken. The one, it, when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And you're like, are those my only two options, right? But caught between a rock and a hard place here. But Jesus is just laying it how, how it is. There's no avoiding him, see. There's no avoiding him. For those who would reject him, for those who re would rebel against him, for those who basically would say, listen, I can take this weight on myself. I am like Atlas, ready to take that weight on my own shoulders. Jesus says, no, you're going to be crushed. Those sins, the weight of your sins are ultimately going to grind you down. No one can carry it except for me alone. You can't do it. So is there no other alternative? To fall on him and be broken? Doesn't sound much better. But listen, I want you to hear it through the ears and, and through the lens of the scriptures. Because it might sound bad for sure. But from the big, biblical perspective, being broken is a blessed way to be. Psalm 51 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a, bo a broken and contrite heart he will not despise. In Isaiah 61, a scripture that Jesus invokes in kind of his inaugurating sermon in Luke chapter 4, it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bind up the brokenhearted. Broken sounds bad, but in the economy of God, it is a blessed way to be. And the invitation of our Lord Jesus is for you and me to fall on this cornerstone. Fall on this stone as the, the Magi did before the feet of the infant Jesus. Fall on this stone as the hemorrhaging woman did coming before him. Fall on this stone as the, the leprous man fell on his face before him. Fall on Jesus and be broken. Because in him, it's a blessed way to be. It's been said that the church is not only a place to come together, it's also a place to fall apart. That's what we have here. It's not only a place where we come together, where we're all put together, where we've got it all together. This is a place where you're also free to fall apart. And when we gather together here, we come as those who have broken hearts, broken hopes, broken homes, broken lives. And your Savior, Christ Jesus, meets you in broken bread to bind you up, to make you whole in a way that nothing else in this world ever could. So often we find ourselves between hard places and the rock. But Christ is that rock. You are beside him. You are upon him. He is with you every step of the way. And so in him, to be between that rock, the hard place, well, it's a best, blessed place indeed. Amen. May the peace of God that surpasses all understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. We stand to confess our faith.